and of course, the trouble is that a lot of this is is actual incremental reinvention. I mean, and you can indeed take any number of big successful companies. You can take Procter and Gamble. You can take Citibank or whatever. And the trouble is that their reinvention is happening in small increments through developing new brands, developing new channels to market, building huge operational efficiencies through digitization, which are allowing them to sort of adapt and move with the times. And, and you know, we keep on talking about disruptive innovation as if that's the most common form of innovation, where a completely new product comes along, which disrupts and kills off the existing ones. What we kind of forget is that most digital technology is actually helping existing established companies to get better. Hi there, this is David Knorr. Welcome to the third season of the Curve Vendors Podcast. I'm so excited after years of research and interviews and due diligence on this topic to finally be able to publish Curve Vendors this year. It'll be my 11th book as a follow-on to Relationship Economics and Co-Create. Curve Vendors, in essence, are your strategic relationships that enable your non-linear growth in the future. Our research points to 15 forces that we believe will dramatically impact the future of how you'll work, how you'll live, how you'll play, and how you'll give. The global pandemic is just one example. So how will you remain relevant if more disruption will come at us more often with potentially far greater impact? In each episode, I want to share with you insights, great ideas from guests I've invited to join us, as well as practical ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, your behaviors, and most importantly, what I believe is your biggest asset, which is your portfolio of relationships. I call those relationships your curve benders. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. Noor here. I want to let you know that we've launched a brand new website, including a brand new blog, a resource section with links to all the previous podcast episodes, Inc. and Forbes articles, and a new intimate community called the Noor Forum. It's a place where like-minded professionals are gathering to learn, share, and grow through insights about strategic relationships, visual storytelling, and nonlinear growth. This is also where you'll find the show notes, articles, references to position papers by my podcast guests. For example, I hosted David Burkus on a live stream, and we've put a link to that video there. So join us at norgroup.com slash forum. That's N-O-U-R group, norgroup.com slash forum. Welcome back to another episode of the Curve Benders podcast. My guest today is a, a new friend. But someone certainly who I've had great conversations with and admire his work, Julian Birkinshaw from the London Business School is our guest. Julian, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you. For those that may not be as familiar with your work, could you kindly talk for a few minutes about your background, where you've been and what you've done? Yeah, sure. So I I work at the London Business School. I've been here for 20 years. I've also lived in North America in, in Toronto. And my research, my academic career has been built on trying to figure out how big established companies adapt. And of course, you know, the context of that changes today. It's all about COVID. For the last decade or so, it's all been a story around 
digital transformation, but there's a whole bunch of other aspects as well. And in essence, the story is always about big companies trying to figure out ways of acting more like small companies. You know, just as small companies sometimes try to become, you know, more powerful and dominant like larger companies. And I guess the other thing I'll say by way of introduction is I work in a business school. I'm an academic, but I'm an academic who deliberately kind of lives his life half in the world of academia and half in the world of practice. So I write my my sort of sensible academic articles using statistical methods and so forth. But I also write books. I also do keynote speeches. I, I do consulting work with companies. So a lot of my research is very much informed by by what's really happening in the world today and by the, the challenges that companies are facing. And I, I like to be a bit contrarian as well. I'm always trying to find an angle which is different to the angle in the mainstream literature and press. Love that. So let's talk about, let's begin with obviously this pandemic, but I want to ask you, what are the top trends you've observed in the last year of us living with this in terms of big companies? How are big organizations learning to adapt, embrace, kind of function within all this disruption that's happened to all of us? Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, of course, we've all lived through this and we've all got our own views, but my view is that the big companies have actually adapted pretty well. In other words, we saw the first few months of the pandemic where obviously it was all hands to the pump, trying just to keep the show on the road. And of course, there's some industries where that it was literally not possible without government help. But, but in most industries, my own, for example, we were remarkably quick at taking, for example, all our teaching online. And we see this in sector after sector. Companies adapt in ways they didn't even know they possibly could. So they adapted pretty well. And the first phase was all about what I'm thinking of as sort of basic operational resilience. And now we're already seeing sort of the next wave of change, which is operating on two levels. One level is, you know, seeing how the world is adapting in the years to come and building really sort of strategic resilience. And then the other is figuring out new and better ways of working internally. A lot of companies are even pledging that people don't have to go back into the office full time or even part time. And they've become quite clever, I think, about making use of technology to, to really do everything that used to be done face-to-face in a virtual way. So, so I'm, I'm very bullish about how big business has adapted to the circumstances, obviously, with some poor industries really struggling because of the circumstance. In our last conversation, I was fascinated by this bad rap. Right, that big companies get, including, I admit, guilty, uh, you know, of we don't, you know, we believe they're lethargic. We believe they're big oil tankers and they can't move and they can't make decisions and they can't adapt. You have a really interesting perspective, which is, you know, larger organizations are in fact reinventing themselves and they're underplayed. And we give, you know, some of the more recognizable startups or tech companies a lot of kudos and put them on a pedestal, but we don't really recognize. It's kind of this reinvention that's going on in these bigger companies. Talk about that for a few yeah, minutes. Yeah, I will. And, and I'm going to start with this killer stat, which I shared with you when we talked first time. I took sort of 25 years of the Fortune 500 because, of course, the internet has been with us for 25 years, just over. And so I took a look at the list of companies in the Fortune 500 last year. And I asked a very simple question. How many of those companies did not exist in any shape or form 25 years earlier? And of course, when you ask that question, 
a lot of people guess like 100, 150 or 200 of them. It turns out there's only 16 of those companies. And that's the ones you know. It's the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Teslas, the Netflixes. There are only 16 companies on the Fortune 500 that did not exist a quarter of a century back. Every other company is either a company with the same name as it had before, or occasionally it's a spin out of a, an existing company. Kraft Heinz spun out Mondelez. Mondelez is technically new, but it's not really a new company. And that one statistic takes everybody by surprise because it's a reminder that even if the narrative is about Google and Tesla and so forth, the truth is that the vast majority of the big successful companies in the US and indeed around the world are still the big old favorites. And they've actually reinvented themselves far more effectively than most people would believe. So that's the headline statistic. And underneath that, of course, there's a whole lot of reasons why that's going on. Talk about those reasons for a second. And I'm really curious about some examples of reinvention. You're right. The Amazons and the Teslas and Googles and these guys get a lot of the headlines. But I'd love to hear the ones you may be aware of that are not, Julian, incrementally, but they're genuinely reinventing themselves. Yeah. So, and of course, the trouble is that a lot of this is, is actual incremental reinvention. I mean, and you can indeed take any number of big successful companies, you can take Procter & Gamble, you can take Citibank or whatever. And the trouble is that their reinvention is happening in small increments through developing new brands, developing new channels to market, building huge operational efficiencies through digitization, which are allowing them to sort of adapt and move with the times. And, And, you know, we keep on talking about disruptive innovation, as if that's the most common form of innovation, where a completely new product comes along, which disrupts and kills off the existing ones. What we kind of forget is that most digital technology is actually helping existing established companies to get better. So, you know, the the banking industry is foremost amongst this. And I'm going to get people arguing with me on this, and and I enjoy that, which is the following, which is you take 25 years of innovation in the banking industry, you can go back to, you know, telephone banking, internet banking, mobile banking, you can look at blockchain, you can look at peer to peer lending. In every one of these cases, people were predicting that the big banks would struggle to adapt and that the fintech companies would take over. And in every single one of these cases, the big banks have embraced these technologies and are as powerful as they ever have. Of course, I'm not saying that we won't see disruptive change in the banking industry. What I'm saying is up until now, all the big city banks and and JP Morgans and so forth have actually embraced these things and have adapted quite effectively to everything that's gone on before. So what are they doing? What's the reason for this reinvention? What are some of the reasons that you believe yeah. is going to, by the way, in the same sector, set some players apart from others? Yeah. I'm afraid you've got to take a half a step back here to say, look, there are at least four generic ways in which you can respond to a potential disruption. I mean, one is to you know, fight back in directly to sort of take on the, the, the new company on its own terms. And this is where Barnes and Noble tried to create its own bookstore to compete with Amazon. And we know how that worked out. But another way is just to is double down on your existing strengths. If you are actually a Procter and Gamble or a, a Pfizer or whatever, you have huge power of distribution, huge power of brand, huge power in your patents. And actually you can often fight off the, the new guys simply by being 
continually doing better what you've always done. And then there's a whole bunch of defensive strategies, such as consolidation, just merging with you know, your competitors, which we see happening in all the traditional industries out there. And then you've even got the option of, if you like, kind of moving away, actually migrating away from the area in which the competition is happening. And I'll just give you one brief example of that. The Canadian company called Thomson, Thomson Corporation, you know, they were world leaders, if you like, in newspapers back in the 1990s. They could see the, the, world, the way the world was going. They sold their newspaper assets. They bought a bunch of information publishing companies, and they became what is now Thomson Reuters, which is a world leader in its own respect. So, so my answer is all these different strategies collectively together represent the things that big established companies are doing. And of course, the specific mix of these strategies varies with the content. So flip the coin for me. Yeah. The competitors who are not, right, yeah. in these yeah. big lethargic companies, yeah. the yeah. ones that cannot evolve and really reinvent themselves, yeah. what's holding them back? What's the biggest culprit so, of a lot of these companies who are no longer relevant? Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, as you say, you've got to take sort of sector by sector. You see some companies have succeeded, relatively speaking, and others have failed. And to answer your question, you've got many sectors where incumbents are a little bit too comfortable, a little bit too profitable, a little bit too happy to kind of go along with what they've done before. They get a little bit trapped in their own existing business. And therefore, they what they do is they kind of lack the courage to go beyond that. And in some ways, this is a very old story, right? I mean, why did Kodak fail? Why did Nokia fail? It's not that they didn't see that the world was changing before their eyes. They lacked almost like the, the political power to make the huge commitments to the new courses of action that were necessary. So when we see companies fail, it's almost always a lack of commitment to a new course of action. It's very rarely a lack of awareness. And so that is what holds such companies back. But my bigger argument, of course, is that, that there are some sectors of the economy where you don't even have to be that big and bold. I mean, if I take the consumer goods industry, you know, the FMCG industry, and I look at the Unilevers and the Procterans and the, the Crafts, I mean, what's going to make a difference between them succeeding or not is not one huge commitment to one big new play. It's actually being really good at doing the basics of what they've always done and continuing to adapt. So you see what I mean? So I'm, I'm trying to make the point that, that this, this, the, the sort of the disruptive sort of angle is sometimes counterproductive. It's very relevant in tech and media and telecom. It's less relevant in many other sectors. Are you seeing examples of some of these larger, more mature organizations learning from previous missteps? Yeah, no, so, so absolutely. So there's, there's a couple of, of ways of thinking about that. You know, one is that we can absolutely look back on, on Kodak failing, if you like, and say the tech companies today have a much better equipped to adapt when those potentially disruptive threats hit them. And what they're doing, of course, is they're putting money in very early on. And they're creating those separate units off to, off to one side in which they're giving those people a lot of autonomy to act. So you're absolutely seeing, you know, history doesn't exactly repeat itself because, you know, every generation, you know, we've got, you know, our current situation, but also the learnings from the previous generation. So, so we see a lot of that going on. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the fascinating things to me that I've picked up in my conversations with, with executive leaders and clients is they've, Julian, they've figured out 
how to navigate their way through this pandemic, right? Yeah, Between yeah, working yeah. from home and remote and tools and so yeah. on and so forth. Their concern is, can you imagine if we didn't have internet access yeah. like the last yeah. year, right? Yeah. So it's really the next disruption, right? Yeah. God forbid if it's cyber, God forbid if it's a natural disaster. You talk a lot about kind of future-proofing yeah. the organization, really building, and you alluded to it earlier, building a more yeah. resilient organization. Yeah. Give our audience a glimpse into, yeah. if I'm a PNL leader, yeah. what should I be thinking? What do I prioritize? How do I do that? How do yeah. I build a more resilient yeah. myself as a leader, my team, my organization? Yeah. So there are some established tools, and then there's some things which I think have, have kind of emerged in the last couple of years. And the old favorite scenario planning is still relevant today as, as it was 50 years ago. In other words, if you are a PL leader today, fresh from the pandemic, you know that the nature of the next shock is almost by definition something that you can't anticipate. And, you know, that's the nature of a shock, right? We always fight the last war. So you have to take that scenario planning process seriously. In other words, what you've got to do is you've got to map out all of those possible scenarios, and you then got to start putting not so much probabilities against them, but but at least some sort of sense of a reality check in terms of if this were to happen, you know, what would the future look like? And then you've got to not just sort of have a view on that, but you then got to say, what have we done already? What options, what strategic options can we take out that would actually put us in a decent place to cope with that. So we'll go back to the, the pandemic and we'll go back to what some organizations did a couple of years earlier. You know, I can use my own organization, you know, London Business School, many of the others, we built digital capabilities. We actually figured out how to do online teaching. Thank goodness, because obviously that then was a an option, if you like, a, a capability that enabled us to ride through that particular storm. So it's important to do scenario planning but it's even more important to then act on it and figure out within reasonable bounds what are the possible things that could affect us and to make sure that you put in place those basic mitigation strategies. Now, this is advice we've had forever, right? I just think that right now, people are just so much more sensitive to it. They might take it seriously for the first time. Any ideas or any perspectives on the evolution of talent? What has to happen for talent in these organizations yeah. Yeah. to be able to think and lead differently? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a terrific question, right? I mean, we absolutely know that the talent we require is evolving. You know, we need people to be, first of all, much more digitally savvy than, shall we say, my generation is. And then you've got to start thinking through what are some of the other skills, if you like, that we need people to have to be adaptive. And you know, this is an old story in some sense, but it's particularly acute nowadays as we start talking about, you know, the rise of artificial intelligence and so forth. We need our talent. We need our, our next generation of leaders to be much more creative, much more sensitive to context, much more empathetic, if you like, than perhaps they were in the past, because these are all, you know, hu the human talents, which will be required regardless of how the world works out. And, and we're not making predictions as to how Quickly, artificial intelligence, for example, is is going to take over the workings of our companies. To, in order, we don't have to make those predictions. In order to realize that those very human qualities I've just talked about are the things that will stand us in good stead in the years to come. And of course, we're, at the moment, we simply aren't actually in our educational systems. We aren't actually creating 
that skill set. We're still a little bit stuck on functional expertise and deep knowledge, and we need much more breadth and a lot more of the kind of the, the skills you might get out of a Muslim liberal arts type background rather than the science background. Do you subscribe to uh, Scott Galloway's prediction that a lot of academia will, will have to transform to remain relevant since you brought up education? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I follow Scott's work and he's great. And of course, as always with someone like that, you don't take everything he says, you know, all the way. But And I don't believe that, you know, a lot of these universities are going out of business. But I absolutely buy at least part of his of his thesis. And the bit which I sticks in my mind, of course, is that, you know, the university sector and educational sector is kind of living on borrowed time. I mean, we've got a, if you like, a business model, which is a little bit uh, stuck in, you know, the previous century. And so, so yeah, we business schools, we universities have to take this pandemic situation as a sort of a, an opportunity, if you like, to rethink quite fundamentally what the value we actually add to our students is. Because, you know, we can't just assume that they want to come hang out on campus, you know, make lots of friends, get a job as a sufficient condition for, for charging them a lot of money. So I go at least halfway down the track that he wants to take us down. The British Academy published a, a fascinating paper last fall on future of the corporations. Oh, yeah. And they outlined kind of the changes that corporations need to make yeah. in becoming more purposeful. Yeah. Talk about that. Talk about yeah. the need for the people on the planet to be really the heart of that yeah. future of the organizations we all want to belong to, we all want to yeah. kind of work with. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean... Just before the pandemic, so almost exactly a year ago, we it felt like we just reached this tipping point in terms of the importance of purpose and sustainability to the corporate world. So I went to the Davos conference, the World Economic Forum, this time last year, and that was the only thing anybody wanted to talk about. Every corporate leader was lining up to talk about this. So, and of course, we got a little bit lost in the, in the whole pandemic situation, but now it's it's coming back again and. And as I say, we've reached a point where not only is you know, the global warming threat tangible, but we've also got enough social change underway, I think, for people to now embrace without question this notion that, that a company has to be a force for good in the world, that it has to have some sort of raison d'etre, which is more than simply the creation of profits for its own shareholders' benefit. And that following from that, theme. Therefore, we can expect people in such organizations to, you know, to put in the, the discretionary effort to, to deliver on that purpose. And, you know, the, I guess the, you know, the acid test is, you know, are consumers prepared to pay perhaps a little bit more for such products? Are shareholders prepared to accept slightly lower returns? And then the answer in both cases is just on the margin. Yes. I think we, we finally got to the point where we don't have to sort of fall back on this doctrine of sort of shareholder value maximization. So that for me is, is important. And, and, and as we get through the pandemic, we can start to see that, you know, the relationship that humans have with the natural world is absolutely in focus. And I think perhaps the whole purpose and sustainability agenda will become even more prominent now in the next couple of years. To get there, I believe one of our biggest threats is actually bureaucracy. Gary Hamill yeah, just yeah. wrote about it in Humanocracy. Talk about bureaucracy, and, and Martin Lindstrom is another good friend that yeah. just wrote the you know, mis yeah. <laughs> Ministry of Common Sense. And yeah. So talk about the role yeah. of bureaucracy yeah. and how do we start to chip at it? How do yeah. we, I, don't, I don't believe it's going to go away overnight. Well, indeed. And 
you know, Gary's a good friend. We've uh, he and I have written stuff together. He's taking this banished bureaucracy perspective. Essentially, you know, we should be able to create organizations which are free from bureaucracy. And I, I don't get all the way there, actually. My view is the following, which is that, of course, large established companies over the years have allowed bureaucracy and layers of management and processes to kind of, you know, grow like weeds. And that it is the job of every executive, every senior executive, to periodically kind of cut that stuff back and to delay and to empower people closer to the front lines to try to find mechanisms. Agile is one such mechanism, which actually does put decision-making power right close to the front line. But you see, that whole kind of fluid self-organizing logic that Gary and others have pushed only actually works at scale within some sort of superstructure that some people would call bureaucracy. In other words, I don't subscribe to this notion that big organizations can self-organize. What they can do is create a very light touch administrative structure, and they can try to ensure that within that structure, we've got whole teams and whole business units which are operating in a kind of a in a sort of self-organized way. So that's my view on bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is mostly bad, but a very well-functioning bureaucratic system, particularly if you're operating a, I don't know, a nuclear power plant, a well-functioning bureaucracy actually still has its place in this world. So I have a, a kind of a, a balanced view. And for me, the first question you've got to ask is, do we actually need to to ensure the safety of the people taking part in this system. And if we do, then some sort of bureaucratic system is appropriate. If we don't, if in fact we're operating in the world of software or whatever, then we can absolutely move towards these much more agile, fluid, ad hoc ways of work. Talking about technology and work, you also brought up you know, AI, obviously AI and ML are big, big yeah. topics. Yeah. You actually believe they may actually bring us closer in terms of our connections within the organization and really build and nurture previously unforeseen relationships or deepen some of the relationships we have. Talk about that. Yeah, so machine learning, artificial intelligence, I mean, this is the next round, if you like, of computer innovation. And it's nothing revolutionary happening here. All we're doing is making our computers just that bit smarter year after year. And obviously, there have been some some clever advances in terms of how that technology works, which has accelerated machine learning. But I actually don't believe that machine learning is going to have any sort of disruptive effect on organizations. What it's doing is making more of the mundane routine type activities, that which we didn't enjoy doing in the first place, more susceptible to technology. And that just as has always happened, those things will become you know, automated. And we as a species, if you like, will adapt to that situation as we've always done. And we will find ways of complementing those technologies through exactly as you say in your question, through focusing on relationships and empathy and judgment and creativity, all those, if you like, uniquely human Qualities. You know, the, you've undoubtedly come across Moravec's paradox, which is this idea that, you know, the stuff that computers find really easy, we find hard, but the stuff that we find easy, computers find hard. So, so there's always going to be this whole category of things that we're doing in terms of how we relate to others and how we come up with new ideas. All the fun stuff of our work is actually stuff that the computers are going to be struggling ever to, I think, 
to be able to do. So, you know, in this enlightened worldview, if you like, we find ourselves doing all the more interesting aspects of work and, and, and sloughing off the, the, the rest of the, the work to the computers. So I, I'm a bit of a techno-optimist, I must admit. In our last several conversations, I've appreciated your counterintuitive kind of thinking and perspective. As you mentioned, you've written several books for our audience. We'll include those in the show notes. Yeah. Julian, can you comment on the top two, three counterintuitive lenses or perspectives you're looking ahead in this post-pandemic world, what are others not talking about? Or what are the things that you're seeing as particularly either a myth or misperception or a different lens than others? Yeah, crikey. Well, the work I just touched on at the beginning of our conversation is, is I believe, counterintuitive. I mean, the this idea that disruption, digital disruption, is a bit of a myth. Uh, that always upsets a few people. It's not that it's a complete myth. I mean, almost always with myths, there's a sort of a half truth to these things. And so what I'm trying to do is just to, is to remind the world that even though we talk about Google and Facebook and Amazon, what we should be doing is talking about the big established companies that are reinventing themselves. So that's the first one, which I'm just going to reiterate. Let me take a sort of a more micro level one, which is as we look at the, the world of virtual working, you know, the, obviously, we've all started to, to figure out how to work online. There's actually a point of view out there that that works pretty well, uh, that, in fact, we've all adapted quite nicely to virtual working. I actually have a real problem with one aspect of this, which is the following. If we all move to virtual work, yes, we can manage our day-to-day conversations just as we are doing now, completely efficient. What we are absolutely losing in that is two aspects of our effectiveness as organizations. One aspect is that we're completely losing our organizational culture. And organizational culture, by definition, is the sort of the things that happen around us in a sort of semi, you know, semi invisible way. And you just don't build an organization culture online. And then the other thing that we're losing is that we're losing any ability to, shall we say, learn and develop and change our roles. You know, the working online, what do we do is we, we become even more efficient at doing the things we've always done uh, because we're not got any disruptions. And my real worry is that the whole kind of notion of learning by doing, learning by being an apprentice and sort of watching other people doing things and then experimenting ourselves, all of that stuff is being a little bit lost. So I actually think the companies that say everybody can work virtually from now on I think they are actually getting it wrong. I think it's, it's actually going to be necessary to, to adopt a hybrid model where, you know, we're perhaps 50% in the office, 50% at home, something like that. I'm a big believer of that model behavior and recently spoke with an executive who said, you know, I learn as much from behaviors I, I don't want to model. What I see others doing, that's just not who I want to be. So right. I, I think... <laughs> Coming back together will go a long way. Julian, obviously, we, we, you know, we talked about curve benders as relationships that profoundly impact not just what you accomplish, but also the person, the leader that you become. Yeah. Could you think of one or two individuals in your past yeah. who've had a real indelible imprint on who Julian has become? Crikey. Look, there was a guy called Samantha Goshal. He was my mentor at London Business School. He died 15 years ago or so. And I guess, you know, when I think about it, he was always, I mean, much more than me. He was actually always challenging. I mean, you know, he lived for, you know, finding some sort of orthodoxy that he could invert. And so, you know, I've very much taken the spirit of what he 
he believed in. And I've taken that on. And I do believe not just in terms of me and my own career, but I do believe whenever I'm talking to executives that, that we've got to do this a bit better. You know, we, we look at the Steve Jobses and the Elon Musks of this world. And, and of course, we kind of marvel, marvel at them, but we don't actually find a way of allowing those people with those traits to sort of sit within our organizations. You know, we like the idea that we might be, be a little bit Steve Jobsy in terms of, of our own attributes, but we struggle to really give voice to the people who have that set of unreasonable attributes, even within our own team. So my biggest sort of learning on this, and I try to practice this, is don't just be a bit unreasonable and provocative yourself. Figure out ways of helping those people under you to actually exercise that very same freedom. And sometimes that means actually deliberately employing people who who are difficult, who are a bit awkward. And, And of course, that makes us feel a bit uncomfortable but it's actually part of enabling the sort of change programs that we've been talking about today. You've been a brilliant guest. What's the best way for our audience to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, so, I mean, I've got a website, julianberkinshaw.com. My most recent book was called Fast Forward, and obviously people can pick that up. The next one, I'm afraid, is not out for another year or so. It's called The Myths of Disruption. So my website is the best starting point. If you've joined us late, you've been listening to Julian Berkshaw, professor of strategy and entrepreneurship in London Business School. Brilliant background, including a fellow of the British Academy, U.S. Academy of Management, Academy of Social Scientists, as well as Academy of International Business. As he mentioned, is the author of more than 15 books, including Fast Forward, I love this one, Becoming a Better Boss, <laughs> and Reinventing Management. So Julian, thank you for being our guest on the Curvebenders podcast. Thank you very much, David. By the way, three quick points, new season and a renewed commitment to our digital footprint, blog, newsletter, social media. We turn the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles, so you can find those in our completely revamped new blog forthcoming at norgroup.com slash blog. Number two, we're completely revamping our newsletter to make them even more practical and relevant with both a free and a premium version. Check it out at norgroup.com slash newsletter. Lastly, we want to bring the content from these episodes to life. So whether it's a Twitter chat with a guest or live streaming through our Facebook and YouTube channels, or even more recently, a Clubhouse audio conversation, check out our various social media channels with the hashtag Curvebenders for the latest update. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with Julian Birkinshaw. You can definitively see how he may be an academic, but in terms of strategy and entrepreneurship and his work in the Deloitte Institute of Innovation Entrepreneurship at London Business School helps him uh, really get and keep his finger on the pulse of what's happening in the market. Uh, three comments Julian made in our conversation that really resonated with me. I got to tell you, I was really surprised that only 16 of the Fortune 500 are new to the list in the last 25 years. And he's right. We hear a lot about Amazon and Google and Tesla and Netflix, and you don't think about Procter & Gamble. You don't think about some of those uh, pillars of our economy and and, and various industries, And, and which leads me to number two. He's exactly right. A lot of these large 
established enterprises have enormous breadth and depth, and they are incrementally innovating their channels to market, their operational efficiencies, new products and services, and that's how they're able to remain relevant and top of mind and top of where we spend money and and continue to invest in them, which leads me to the the third point. I also uh, agree that the future of corporations will heavily depend on their ability to articulate their purpose and really a sustainable future. I think increasingly the societal norms and expectations are becoming of what's your story and how proactively are you telling that purpose and sustainability story. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to this conversation to Julian and I had and really think about your team, your organization, and how you can implement some of these ideas. Handful of quick reminders. Number one, uh, I'll turn the show notes from this episode uh, and to uh, both post them in our blog. So I hope you'll check that out in norgroup.com slash blog. I also write, uh, I have a column in Inc. and Forbes, and I repurpose this interview into some insights that I'll post there. My best thinking can be found every day in our private online community. It's called the NOR Forum. It's free. It's where like-minded professionals who are passionate about strategic relationships, uh, visual storytelling, and non-linear growth gather. So come join us at norgroup.com slash forum. Number three, I have some fabulous guests joining us in the next several weeks. Damon Griggs is CEO of Dovell Technologies. Colonel Diane Ryan, Associate Dean at Tisch College at Tufts University, and she's a former leadership deputy director at West Point. Michael Watkins, Jeff Parker, Mandeep Rai, Kate O'Neill, Dennis Sadlowski, another one of my favorite CEOs, was the former CEO of Siemens Energy and Automation, where I met him oh, a bunch of years ago. A great guy, lives in Dallas, was going to talk a lot about the recent power grid and kind of future of industrial automation. And I also had a great conversation recently with Michael Dominguez, uh, formerly an executive at uh, MGM in Vegas, now CEO of Alhai, uh, who's going to talk about future of travel and events. So check out hashtag Curvebenders podcast for the latest updates. I'm so grateful for all of our listeners on the Curve Vendors podcast. I'd love to hear from you with ideas, with suggestions, with guests you'd love to hear from at this intersection of future of work, strategic relationships, and nonlinear growth. You can simply email podcast at norgroup.com or follow us on various social media channels where I use the hashtag Curve Vendors to keep you posted on our latest progress.